My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a former Navy SEAL who conducted combat operations in Baghdad and Ramadi. Upon leaving the service, my guests realized that once you've been in combat and are no longer in that world, nothing on the other side correlates to it. He also realized that there needs to be stepping stones to something else, because without them, that leads down a road of destruction. My guest put his mind and know-how to first saving the monarch butterfly, but he couldn't stop there. He's established an idea that will lead to healthier lives for not only veterans, but to anyone that is willing to learn. He's the CEO and founder of Guardian Grange, which is a humanitarian and environmental regeneration project to protect natural resources, strengthen communities, and facilitate veteran reintegration with a renewed sense of purpose. It's a pleasure to introduce Mark Matzel Delafour. What's going on, my friend? Hey, how you doing? That thank you. Yeah, um, lots going on, man. I just got back from a four-hour, four and a half-hour drive from uh, San Diego. So, full benefit in the sun. We did a sweat um, sweat lodge at Church of the People for Creator Mother Earth on a reservation down there, and had a good, uh, good sweat and just feeling it, you know, feeling the the drive and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I, we're going to get into that because I think there's a lot of alternative therapies with you and a lot of different ways to approach PTS and some things that come from being in combat, being in service, whether that be first responders, military, whatever. So we're going to get into that, but we always start out the show by talking about kind of your youth, what put you on this path to be in the military? What made you go down the road you're going and not only into the military, but into special operations and into kind of the tip of the spear into combat? Yeah, for sure. Sounds like a good as place as any to start at the beginning, right? So um, I was always like out in the woods as a kid, just that's where I like to be. I didn't really enjoy school that much. You know, like I, I enjoyed learning certain things, but I learned on my own and the academic setting was not, um, you know, not conducive to a little boy who wanted to just run around the woods. So I really valued that time. And as uh, school kind of progressed and I was figuring out what am I going to do, going to go into society and live, you know, to go to college, go to the normal job route. Um, I just started learning about the military, you know, I knew obviously there was the army Marines, the basic branches, but I didn't really know much about any of it. Um, so then I first heard about like army Rangers. I'm like, Oh, there's just like this X, just like more niched out group that does more specific, specific missions and things like that. And then I started learning about green berets and Navy seal, these special operations. So I started just studying all of it. And, um, eventually, you know, chose Navy SEAL because that was like in all terrains, no matter what, small units, sneaky. 
and it was where I wanted to go. It was a calling, you know. Um, it was uh, right up my alley. I'd rather be just as close as I could be to the woods and doing work like that. That's what uh, got me to decide to join the Navy as uh, going for the special operator qualification, which at that time you still had to come in as a rate, like a gunner's mate or a, a, a normal, like a uh, general Navy um, job, basically in case you didn't make it, then you'd go back to there and uh, you did, we did like an A school and then we'd go to buds and got to a team and um, deployed a couple times, did the trade at thing. And yeah, that was, that was kind of this, the general, the broad strokes of that journey. I know we can talk more about specifics, but I'll leave it there for now. Well, and, and of course, I don't want to talk about, you know, through buds. People tell that story a hundred times and stuff. The, the point that I want to make about it, though, is not only the buds in general, but having that mental toughness and looking at how your mental state is at the beginning of, you know, your whole career that's in front of you. And then how's your physical state? And then as we kind of progress through your career and to now, I want to show the differences that you can tell in your body that others can tell in your body and just kind of show how no matter what you do or what you try to do, there's going to be those breakdowns and you've always got to be ready to jump back in on it and kind of fix those as they come up because they can tend to build up and then you get way behind the power curve on it. So at the beginning of your career, how are you feeling? What's your outlook on this? Uh, you're going to be at the front of the global war on Terra. So can we kind of talk about your mind state and physical state right off the bat? Yeah, I mean, I was ready to go um, go to the show at the end of the day. That's why I chose to go to the special operations community and SEALs is to get the work done. So I was, you know, 100% um, present and ready to, to go in. And as far as like physical state, you know, I was running you know, right straight out of high school. So just doing your normal uh, kind of training that one would do, push-ups, pull-ups, crunches running and just kind of doing a lot of that we'd go to these dive motivators and get run through different um, programs when i actually got into the navy and into a school really because i only did that a couple times at boot camp because they try to keep you sucked into the boot camp scheme that they have going on um so that was like as far as uh preparedness like boot camp was just a long waiting period, you know, and before I finally got to like, okay, a school is one step closer. And by the time I get the buds, that's like, all right, then when it's really beginning at that point, um, I did have like a stress fracture. It was like the first time I ever broke a bone was, um, in a school at some point, just in my foot. And I just basically stayed off of it for a while, recovered and kept going. And the only other really, um, there was no other really wear and tear other than just being ground, ground down, um, you know, beaten, tired and all that, the, the, the normal kind of stuff you would expect from that type of physical activity. So I was fresh, ready to go, but also like, um, in a state of, man, is this real life, you know, cause you're where you want to be. And it kind of is, it's a surreal experience because a lot of people never get there along the way as you're going. It's like less and less people have been there. Um, and playing the psychological game with instructors and that, that part of it was always like pretty comical to me. Cause you know, it's like 
uh, you can see them having fun, but also playing the roles they need to play to weed people out. Um, so it was definitely more um, psychological for people. But if you have the attitude that gets it through, for the most part, you have a twisted, you know, kind of sense of humor and you can laugh in the pain and the suffering and, you know, maintain a positive attitude, even when it's miserable and wet and cold, because at the end of the day, you're alive, you know, you're, you're doing what you want to do. So yeah, that's kind of my state I was in. Well, it, it's interesting to hear that you say that the the mind games were comical to you because I, I want to ask you, what do you think it is? Because all these people that go, like you said, you see less and less the further up kind of the, the ladders of the rung, you, uh, excuse me, the rungs of the ladder that you go, you see less and less people. These people that come in and want to be a SEAL or want to be in the military or, you know, just accomplish something, why do you think it is that they get weeded out um, and, and it's, I don't think it's just a simple answer, like a mind state. I, I, I think there goes more to it. Can you kind of talk about that, about people either, you know, stepping away or not accomplishing that goal and what the difference was for you to accomplish it? Yeah, I think the difference is, is they're not really honest with themselves. They think they want to do it and they really don't. And then when they get to the point of realization of like, Hey, you're going to sit in some you're going to feel some sucky situations. A lot of this work when you, when, when you get down to doing the real work. And, uh, once people had that realization with, with, um, reality, it's like, Oh, that was just kind of some wishful thinking as a romanticized idea of what I wanted to do. And they quit because of that in some, in some level, I get it. There's many excuses that people have, but unless it's like a physical injury that's unavoidable or something, or that, you know, just, they couldn't, overcome um everyone who decides not to be there decides not to be there so it's a choice and it's interesting to see people get weed themselves out um and that's where it was kind of fun like seeing watching the instructors play and try to mess with you and you know i we'd have like the rebellious attitude for the most part you're doing what you're told but you're also like you know fighting the the psychology in the suck, like talking shit or whatever. And the people who couldn't handle it, just use it to beat themselves up. And then they, they, they left, you know, it's like, Hey, if you quit, we'll stop this evolution. We just need one quitter. Come on. We got pizza. We got donuts. We got coffee You're cold and wet, man. That sucks. You know, all the way from like that kind of negotiating to, um, you know, just the, the mean, uh, hate everything about you type of instructor personality, um, just beat you at every chance they get. Uh, there's, there's, there's the good cop, bad cop, you know, game being played. It's, it's, it's a fun kind of experience, even though you're in it and it's happening to you. And so I, uh, I enjoyed that, that side of stuff, even when it sucked, it was entertaining. So what's the difference when you leave there and, and you're there for quite a while, but you leave there, you go to a team it's, it's the same kind of you got to put your head down and get it done because you're the new guy. But is there a different look at it? Is there a different approach that you take to it uh, as in mind state or physical state going into it just because you're the new guy and you got to prove yourself all over again to this team? Yeah, I mean, it's really the same. You're just it just keeps you keep um, chasing the present moment of like you're proving yourself every second, every time. Like it's not just because you pass buds or sqt or work whatever it's like you had to constantly prove yourself really until you go through at least a couple cycles or like a wartime cycle of a deployment um and then you have some 
some experience. So that's, uh, you know, you're usually like humble, quiet. That's the ideal new guys is to soak things up like a sponge and obviously operate to the, your maximum capacity. Um, and yeah, really just respect the fact that you're amongst warriors and you're getting, um, taken in to a, a community of, of, of that caliber of person. So it's, there's, there's a lot to learn still. It doesn't end. And then, and it just keeps going on. The more experience you get, um, the more, the more wisdom you have to share, right? If someone's like brand new, they don't have any wisdom at the end of the day, as far as like how things function in operationally, even if you had all the training and you're really good at the training, it's still training at the end of the day. So, um, it's theoretical really for them for, to some degree, there, there's some practical aspect, but where you've been to war or something, now you have experience to draw upon, which is, has the potential for wisdom if you can reflect on it and share it. So, um, yeah, as I got to, when I went to my second platoon, I, I spoke a lot more. Well, and that's what I was just getting ready to ask you was I, I've talked to a couple of guys on the show that say they weren't great new guys that they, you know, they weren't necessarily quiet, like a sponge sucking everything mm. in. Um, when you get someone like that, is is it is there a way to take that person aside? And I'm talking to you as an older guy. You said as you gain knowledge and you kind of pass yeah. it off. Is there a way to pull those people kind of offline and go, look, man, you're doing it wrong, and approach it in a way that they will look, hey, man, this guy's not trying to break me down. He's trying to help me out. Is there a way to do that? Yeah, but it totally depends on who you're dealing with. You know, you got to figure out, number one, why are they really there? And if someone's just literally, you know, if they're a good dude and they're maybe just being a little cocky, that's fine. You can work with that. But if someone's just like really, you know, buys their own bullshit and thinks they know more than other people, um, then that's a whole different area. Because if, if they're not willing to work on themselves and willing to be, humble you know sometimes there there was a guy like that who was like a former SWAT guy who came in through our class and he got booted in SQT because he just wasn't he wasn't receptive he's like no I know what I know better than you guys and it's like I guess <laughs> not really see ya so they just booted him and there's been there's been times like that so if someone can be um and most guys can you know because they're they're there for the right reasons at least when I was in um they can really overcome the obstacles of whatever that is, some ego thing at that point. It's like, yo, man, it's like, shut the fuck up and listen for um, your time here. And later on, you'll have your time to speak, you know? Um, at least that's, that's the general um, way of being. And most people, if you get into a situation where you really don't know, you're naturally going to be quiet. But if you get into a situation where you think you know, then maybe you'll be more chatty and um a lot of people think they know and they don't and it creates these little conflicts but i think the more like as uh society has become more narcissistic over the years right in general um there's more of that personality trait that has to get dealt with because it's very high ego driven like we're the masters of our own you know destiny and it's like yeah there is that kind of, but you're also like a speck on God's creation. And if you're not humble and thinking you're the king of the hill, king shit, um, there's a million 
a million and two ways to get you back to humility, whether that's through someone's own experience and they're learning lessons the hard way, or if people just have to have a chat and be like, yo, you're not working out with this team environment and this capacity, you can either make a conscious effort to change or you can beat it, you know? And sometimes they bounce people like that to a different platoon and try it out. And sometimes, you know, they get sifted away, but it's, it's rare that someone comes at that level and gets sifted away. Usually if you've gone through all that, uh, training to get to that point, um, things can be reformed, but it's really about talking to the person and getting on, like understanding where they're at, why are they acting the way they're acting, you know? And then from there you can formulate a communication strategy that would bring that person's ego and awareness into reality of like, yo, here's what you're doing. We're a team or a platoon, whatever, we're a squad. And now you're, it's not about you. It's about the unit. You know, you're part of that. Well, it's, it's always to me, whenever I've talked to you and we've talked a couple times on the phone and stuff. Um, when I talk to you, you always seem to approach life in almost a Zen fashion. Um, do you think you've always been like that? Do you think that's come with age and wisdom? Or do you think that you've always kind of just looked at that and that's the way you've lived your life? Yeah, it's more that I've been like that since I was a kid, like as far back as I can remember, always kind of like, you know, aware, observant, but also detached from the energy that people get wrapped up into usually, you know, and that was the same in like combat, like I was always very calm and at peace um, with where I'm at, you know, it's like if, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. So I'm not worried about that. I'm where I want to be or where, I, where I'm at at least. And I'm comfortable with that. And it's just rolling with the punches at, the t at that time. It's kind of like um, sailing in the ocean. You're going to go with where the winds are. You can kind of navigate a little bit and use it to your advantage. But you might have to make some zigzags to get there. Because if you fight the wind, you're going to go backwards. You know, that's not smart. So, yeah, I was always able to take like a big picture view. And I was very stoic just as a kid, you know, before I ever... I didn't read much. And when I started reading like um, Marcus Aurelius and different Stoics like that, I'm like, yeah, this is like all shit I already had an understanding of. So it was like cool to read like, oh, there's other people who had this kind of philosophy back in the day um, and some still do. But it wasn't some like um, it was refreshing. It wasn't like groundbreaking. It was like, man, I guess I'm not fucking, you know, and uh, uh, like like. <laughs> some alien or something. There's other people who had this way of thinking. So yeah, I've always had it. And, um, I think it's one of those things you come here, there's the nature, the nurture, you know, but there's also like the spirit you come in with. And that's, you know, if someone has a very strong will and spirit, it's not going to be changed by any external factors. So that's kind of, I want to ask you with that, with that stoicism that you have, does it ever become a problem or has it ever been a problem like through training? Because I, I can tell you, I know a couple guys just like that, but it's not that they're confrontational. It's not that they're uh, standoffish with people. They're just living in kind of their moment. So has there ever been a time where that comes up to be a problem for you? Um, not really. I think uh, for the most part, I mean, maybe little bits, but for the most part, because I'm just in that state, very observant and, fairly quiet, you know, 
I'm just soaking up like a sponge. Um, but there are people, you know, who are like, man, this kid, this dude's pretty quiet or whatever. So they're trying to like figure you out because if you're not saying a lot of stuff, if you say little things and they're trying to really extrapolate and yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a game of consciousness. And I've been, I've always been pretty good at that, you know, whether it's dealing with teachers, professors, people who are older and think they're wiser, you know, not to say that it's not necessarily the case, but I've been told many times as a, you know, growing up, like, oh, you'll learn when you get older, kid. It's like, yeah, I got older and I didn't learn what you were saying. I, I've, I realized that I was right the whole time, but it wasn't from a place of like, I'm going to prove someone wrong. It's just, here's here's what I've observed. I have a strong understanding of it. So when someone says like, yo, man, you're too young, this is going to be different. I'm like, okay, I'm open to that possibility. We'll see. Um, and for the most part, um, if you're just real and honestly looking at stuff, you're not imposing your ego onto the equation to, to manifest some belief out of the way something is. You're just seeing it how to how it is. And so I guess from that perspective, I always have been honest and raw and calling out bullshit when it would be easier to pretend that um the lie that's being like believed or taught is is true or the bad decision is a good decision i'm like that's a dumb decision here's why like on my second platoon i was doing that because we had some chiefs that were you know whatever um uh, subpar i would say and uh not 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 anything bad like they came from uh a long period of rest, like away from platoon activities, but then because they had positional authority, they wanted to pretend like they knew instead of drawing back on the tactical experience and leveraging that and making decisions off of that, they're trying to just make erroneous decisions where it's like, dude, this is gonna, this is not the best way to approach this problem. So I'm going to speak up because we're not just going to walk into a silly, a tactically silly situation just because some person thinks it's better when they don't have the tactical experience at the end of the day so it was interesting kind of seeing that that most people for the most part like experience for a guy in the team would be they would they would they would have that more clout honest honestly but there's a few who like didn't didn't really put in their time and they to some degree like hit out admit more administratively and then try to um make up for their own perceived shortcomings, right? So they're projecting a, a more stronger presence instead of just sitting back and listening and asking questions. So I think that goes into like leadership styles or real leadership versus like one of the issues I think had the military has is it thrusts people in leadership positions where maybe they're not, they shouldn't be there, you know? Well, don't you think that's pretty much anywhere, not just the military? I mean, these days... Uh, if you can take a test well or if you can, uh, you know, PowerPoint something very well, you're going to move into that position without really knowing anything. And I think that's a problem in every aspect now. Yeah, 100%. There's a lot of the the perceived expert or the titles that someone has or they got a certain degree or went to college or can speak um, off of basically a script. You know, they can present a a speech or a presentation and it sounds clean and then that gives the illusion of what someone knows what they're talking about you know like you could you could really speak very confidently about making an apple pie and you're using tomatoes and potatoes and stuff and someone's like that's not how you make an apple pie but if you're just going with it and no one knows 
they'll believe you. So I think there's an element of that, like where people feel pressured to pretend like they know what they don't know um, in a lot of aspects to, to fake it till you make it type of thing. And I think that's seen, yeah, definitely across. It's just a human, it's a human condition. It's a stage of human development where they're not willing to be honest with themselves and just be like, yo, you know what? I don't know. I got some stuff to learn. So I'm going to look to the people who know more and learn from them. It's, there's no shame in being a student, um, learning even as a, as a leader, because a leader truly like that word is a bit, um, misguided in how it's used. Like a, a leader is looking out for their, their people, you know, they're, that's the number one thing, not being like, Oh, look at me. I'm out front. I have all this power over you. That's the wrong, that's not a leader. That's a, someone who has a lot of shit to learn at the end of the day. So let's talk another word then. Let me give you another word to kind of figure out in today's society. Humility. Yep. Big time. Humility is a big one. Um, if you don't have humility, that ego gets, gets out of control and you really have to, you know, the ultimate humility is realizing that there is one reality. That's God's reality. Everything else is a perception of that reality. And that's where the ego comes in and is like, well, my perception is actually the right one. And then they start mistaking their perception for the reality. Right. And if it's, if your perception's aligned and it's, and it's, you're seeing stuff for real, it, it will be the same or, or close enough. But if it's not, then people are detached from reality and they're seeing themselves as some like super great respected leader. And meanwhile, their guys are like, uh, what the, who is this clown? Like, what are they doing? You know, but they can't see it, the disconnect there. And that happens again. Yeah. Everywhere across the side. It's, it's more of a stage of human development is how I look at it. Cause I think everyone goes through some time period of that. And it could be for a moment. It could be for years when they have that mental sparring match with their own self. Like, Oh, I know, I know a lot. Um, Oh, but maybe I don't, you know? And then some people just double down because they can't handle not knowing and they just pretend to know. And when it gets to a situation that's very full of friction for whatever reason, like either a complete breakdown or a flare up or something happens where they just, the communication ceases. So that's a, that's a big problem. Lack of internal and external like communication that jives. So taking everything that we've talked about with the humility, being the guy that, that sucks it in, that learns about everything that they need to learn about leadership, all of those different things. Let's talk about you going into combat. Now, I, I want to bring this up and I don't want to go too into the weeds about combat stories. I would like to talk a little bit about combat, what's going on, but more uh, than that, I would like to talk about the mental state and what you're seeing and how you're changing as a person. So going into your first deployment, um, can we talk about kind of timelines, uh, how much time you're spending over there, how much time in actual combat you're spending over there? And then if your perceptions changed about your job or what you're doing, I want to hear about those too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the first deployment was to, it was like a rip. So we did half time in Baghdad and half time in the Asia Pacific. So the first like three months of the six months was in, um, Baghdad, um, in and mostly in the red zone, but in and out of the green zone. Cause we were doing, um, detail for, uh, 
Dr. Jafari, who was essentially like the prime minister or whatever at the time. And our job was just like shuffle this dude around make sure he didn't get, you know, smoked at the end of the day. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, there's bombs and stuff going off. There was rockets, but we really didn't get like direct attacks during that whole time. We had like indirect attacks and the bombs and stuff. Um, and we were just shitting and getting like moving principle from place to place. So we weren't just hanging out. Um, and our posture was very aggressive. So no one really messed with us. There was like one instance where this, this car, I think it was totally random, but started like driving backwards on the other side of a river at our pace. And that was where I like had, I was on the 50 and I was just ready to like, you know, brass out of the, cause he had a butterfly trigger there. So he pulled the brass out and I was just like ready to unload if I saw a reason to. And like some of the guys in the car were like, dude, fuck, like shoot, shoot, shoot. But the like overcomes are like, just wait, wait. And I was just me. Like if I see something, I'll shoot. If I don't, you know, as long as I can, if it make, if I have a justification, I'll go. If I don't, I'm not going to go. Right. Cause uh, it, it, that's a, uh, a moral phys- philosophical thing. Like I don't take erroneous shots or shots that I second guess I'm sure of when I pull the trigger. And so in that instance, I didn't. And some of the guys like, man, you should have just shot that guy's car up and maybe, but nothing happened, you know, like he got out and started fucking with his car and we just kept going. Um, and you know, it was just kind of interesting having that kind of interaction where you're like right there on the edge, ready to pull the trigger, but you decide not to do it. And there's like some pretty, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential for stuff to to happen there. Um, but I was just zoned in looking at for all the cues, you know, if I saw an excuse to, if I saw a reason, a valid reason, even a little one, I would have had no hesitation. Um, but I didn't. So there was no justification for me to take that guy out. Um, and I think that, you know, that's just, again, it's something, it's my own philosophical understanding and morality that I had before even going in. Like, um, you know, if I'm going to take someone's life, right. And that's a big, that's a big responsibility. It shouldn't be, um, looked at cheaply no matter who it is. And I, I never did. And I was, um, you know, valued, uh, my own life and the, and the, the, the people I was with, the bros I was with. Um, but during that whole process, like the PSD, I guess, yeah, we could, could SEALs do that job for sure. Could they do it well? Yeah. Is it the best employment of the asset? No. And I don't care who wants to come on and like from a command side and like, oh, well, that's what the mission needed. It's like, it's, it's using your hammer as a, as a fucking saw. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. Um, and especially when you get to strategic. So that's, I was like just really reflecting on this. All right, strategically, what's going on here? Tactically, like why is this happening? Why are we doing this type of work? And basically hanging our asses on the line for some dude who's completely replaceable in a foreign government. Like that to me was bullshit and it's still bullshit to this day. It doesn't matter that we did a good job. So I was reflecting on that and that's the reason I had opportunity to stay back in country for the rest of the, um, three months or rip. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to stay here and do this shit, I'm not going to stay here. You know, was there a chance I'd go do assaults and stuff? Yeah. But after three months of that, I'm like, mm, now I'll, I'll, I'm not going to roll the dice to stay here and play this game anymore. Um, so then we ripped and we went to the, uh, like a little Asian, the Asian 
area of operation deployment. Well, a lot of people don't know about that side of the war on terror, where there was a lot of work being done uh, in that Asian um, kind of uh, area of operation. So can you speak a little bit about that, breaking off from there, and if it changed any for you once you got there, or if you still saw the same kind of stuff going on? Yeah, I mean, it was it was nice to not be doing PSD, and it was nice to have that rip on the backside because we're not, you know, if you had a, it was basically like vacation before you went home almost, like you're training and stuff, but you're, you've already went to war and you're on the way back. If you were there and still going, you'd be like cranking on the training, you know, just getting ready the whole time. So it was actually like a pressure relief valve in, in some ways, but in other ways it was still like, you know, um, you're doing foreign interactions training but really it's just like it's uh it's presence at the end of the day um and from a relationship aspect from like big military strategy it's like yeah to keep alliances going um at that level it makes sense why they're they're you know we're we're all over these aos but from another perspective it's like you know, we got shit to take care of in America, <laughs> like sending our best, like biggest fighters, like the men who are going to actually stand up and fight for what is right with the person to the rest, left and right, their family, their lands and all that stuff. Sending us over to do nation building shit essentially is what will end up being the downfall of this whole thing. Um, and it's, it's all based in, a misguided understanding of like what we're here to do as human beings. In my opinion, um, there's the pursuit of taking and extracting and there's the, there's the, the duty of defending where you're, where you're at, like the, the, the nature of the land, the people, the community, the families, that's different. That's a big difference. And that's where I think shit gets twisted in people's heads because they think that, the righteous mission or whatever is to go be proactive in other people's backyards where at the end of the day, you don't live there. Um, so I started looking at, um, or just feeling, it. I wasn't even really reflecting at that level at that point. This is more me going, going back right now, but, um, I could just feel like shit really didn't make sense. And I was still had a bitter taste in my mouth from the whole PSD thing. Cause again, it's like, yeah, you're a military, you're doing what the command structure is telling you is best. But it's like, it's clear that either they don't know what's best in a lot of situations or they're intentionally doing the wrong thing. And either one is not that good. So um, I really, I was very highly critical of like these so-called leaders in all aspects from politics to military chains and like seeing what people are really about. And what I found is that many people in leadership roles are full of shit and and they're really out for their own career not out for what is best for defending and making that that unit that team as effective and cohesive and just clean and efficient as possible um so you know i started like really becoming slightly disheartened in not like most of the guys again were solid but just seeing that in the structure I was like, Hmm, yeah, something's off here. You know, something's really not, not right. 
So let me ask you then. So with with Baghdad out of the way, you go over and you do this little three month thing. How much more time until you get back into the United States? And then after you get back into the United States, how much time until you roll back out into combat? Oh, it's pretty quick. Oh, not combat, but to training cycle. Um, So it's about a year and a half, um, you know, so workups. And then you're out there in another couple of years, um, but you're on the road just training nonstop. So you might have like maybe a month's time max to take like some time away, but really less than that for the most part. Um, and then you're back into like a individual level training or a unit level training or something to increase a skill, which is, you know, like that's when I came back, I was able to go to sniper school, which is awesome. That was like the best school that I've, uh, the most, um, educational school, real honest, like learn something school that I went to where I'm like, all right, this is, this is how a military school should be. That sniper program was really good. And I, I, uh, it's like one of the things I want to do is sneal sniper, you know? So, um, I really enjoyed that. And then the workups were fun, but you're, they're intense as far as like time that you're gone. And then you roll right back into a, a deployment somewhere. Um, and mine was to Ramadi in 2006 for my second one. So can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So that one was definitely more of the, the, the ideal, um, the ideal situation, which may sound strange to people because most people don't think it's ideal and not that I want war to be happening, but like, if there is one, I was ready to, we were all ready to roll in. And so because we were doing at that point, overwatches like we had different language basically like sniper missions direct actions um pretty much every single day you know just non-stop so it was a very high op tempo we did a lot of a lot of work a lot of basically patrolling everywhere we we drive from op to op because there's so much ieds we'd wait for routes to be clear and go to like a clear route closer to the target and patrol out so we did a lot of foot patrols um got a lot of a lot of really solid experience on that deployment and um really um enjoyed it so that's one of the reasons i decided as i was going like you know i was looking at that as like man that was a pretty high note to get out on and the other way i saw things going was um that the future deployments may not be exactly like that they may be more disheartening so i was i was going tossing back and forth like as we were coming back like what am i gonna do am i gonna re-enlist am i gonna extend because originally i had planned on just staying in for my whole adult life until i retired um but then just seeing these little things um caused me to just reflect on like you know is that really what i'm gonna do so let's talk about kind of the mental state that you're in because after talking about that first deployment and it's not quite what you think you signed up for. And of course we talk about being disheartened about it, or maybe it's not the right thing. Uh, you, you do a couple things back sides, but you go back, like you said, to an ideal situation in, in every way that you said it was an ideal situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got kind of two different things worn at you there. You're seeing what you actually trained for, what you wanted to do, what you wanted to be. You've seen the other side of it. In yeah, all- but 
even still it was a fight the whole time like for instance like fbi was doing you know these things called shooter statements where they're basically like scrutinizing and investigating you in war from having no like experience or in the ground thing so i I was looking at stuff even as it was like a solid deployment your own branches of your own people are actively trying to fuck with you and that is it's not good like it's good from a micromanagerial perspective if someone really wants to like put their thumb on people but it's like you at the end of the day if you're that way you don't know how to fucking manage warriors so you have no business managing us and I, I was looking at things like that, like who are these people making these decisions and why do I want to work for them at the end of the day? Cause they're not here doing the shit that we're doing and they're trying to scrutinize us and get people, you know, into trouble. It's like, if you're going to play this game, then don't even send us to war at that point. Like pick your, pick your battle. It's either go mode or it's, we're going to try to talk this out. So I feel that people who don't actually go and fight are very quick to offer up the fighting force it's like, uh, you know, the stereotypical lady in the bar with the big mouth who gets her boyfriends into fights by talking shit to other guys and saying that her boyfriend's going to beat their ass. That's what I felt like um, from these so-called leaders. And again, it's not all of them, but there's enough of them in there where it's like, shit, you know, I don't want to work for someone fake. <laughs> so I, I uh, yeah, jaded, it jaded my, my just... It just made it enough to where I knew I was like rolling the dice every time. Like maybe it could be an awesome time, you know, with solid dudes, but there's always a chance where you're in some real life situations and some dumb stuff is being made, some dumb decisions. And uh, after like enough reflection on them, I'm like, yeah, I don't need to roll those dice. You know, if it was if it was like 99% or 100% like solid, cool, I'll stick, but other than that, I decided to do extensions, and that's when I went to trade it after I got back from that deployment because I didn't have enough time on the books to like do another full deployment cycle and work up. And because my enlistment would have happened when I was like overseas, so like you, you either got to re-enlist, or if you do an extension, you can go to you can pick where you want to go in training and um, do that. And that's when I decided to go to assaults, which was good, you know, trade at assaults, and we trained like close quarters combat and urban warfare. Um, yeah. And I, I enjoyed that. It was, it was a good like period of transition and waiting point to see like, am I going to re reenlist or am I going to get out? So I took that whole like three years basically to really sit and deeply contemplate my move. Cause there was nothing else I wanted to do other than, you know, I was this, a seal. So, so, wasn't planning on doing anything else, but now I had to start thinking about, all right, well, if I don't do this, what else am I going to do? Well, so two questions come to mind though, when you say that, okay, so you do all this training, you decide this is what you want to do. You want to be a seal. You just said it right there. That's all you wanted to be was a seal. You wanted to do your job. So you go over there, you get, we can say very disheartened from however the situation was leadership, whatever it may be, the problems that came down. You decide to go to trade it, not decide to go back into another rotation because you wouldn't have enough time. The first question to it is, is after all this time, you spend all this time training, all this time to be, we're what, probably five years in now? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So we'll go five years in and you're not who you train to be. Is there a disconnect there? Is there something that 
that really sours you because we've already talked about you having kind of that Zen and setting back, but it seems like it would be hard even for you to step away from that, not accomplishing what you really set out to do. Well, I did, but I know by the second deployment, like I definitely had as far as like, that was the peak of it. As far as I did get to employ my skills and do what we wanted to do, I would consider a very successful, good deployment. However, there was enough, um, structural things, systemic things going on where I'm like, this is more of an anomaly or like a, you like you hit a lucky kind of rotation I, as opposed I, to this is how things are going. Yeah. I guess I should have formed the question a little better. That's what I mean is that you look around and don't see that what you trained to be or what you wanted to do is going to be maybe a huge factor coming up and to spend the rest of your life. Cause you got, you know, 14, 15 years left. Yeah. Spend the rest of your life sure. doing that. It's gotta be a little disheartening. For sure. Yeah. It was the hardest decision, uh, of my life for sure. At the time probably is definitely up there. It's still to this day to be like, man, it's like, you're there, you're where you want to be kind of, I mean, you are, but it's the, 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 the environment has been shifting or changing and it's not, how it was sold like for instance like um the 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 solid pipe hitting warrior guys were seen as a threat basically to the administrative structure and so guys would be getting in trouble and i'd watch that i'm like well this is a seal team the seals are the weapon at the end of the day they're the they're the instrument that that this whole thing exists for <clears throat> and you're taking solid guys and, and treating them like like kids or like babies or less than and it's like man you know th that's where it started to really like i just would reflect i'm like is like yeah there's a bunch of warriors in this culture but again it's the administrative side where it's like there's where the disconnect is and at the end of the day they're they have the um positional authority to make decisions and in, in that are not <laughs> that are not grounded in any form of reality or making the force effective. And so when I look at that, I'm like, that's, that's a, that's a, a gamble that I don't want to take, you know, um, as far as why should I let someone who doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about <laughs> dictate to how I'm supposed to be acting in the environment. They're telling me to go perform a task or us as a, as a group, like, I don't really, I don't think that's a, that's a, uh, it didn't seem to me like to be a wise decision to continue on that path. And so I made the hard decision of saying like, well, I guess I'm going to get out, you know, and I didn't have any plan for it because I never, you know, I, I wasn't in there for like money or career aspirations or any of this shit. I was there to do the job and they just made that, um, not an environment for, you know, not welcoming basically for people who actually want to do the job. Um, I mean, you could, you could, you could stay there and do it. Plenty of guys stayed in, but, um, I guess you could say I was ahead of my time. Cause there's a lot of guys since who realized that. And some guys wrote some really good stuff. And as far as like just an internal paper that was circulating around that I'm thinking of where it was like called the death of the teams, people who have read it know what that is. And, uh, yeah, I was like, exactly. That's exactly it. So, um, people were feeling the cultural shift and, it goes into simple things like um, 
they're always trying to get like a woman seal or something, right? Like as if that's something that matters whatsoever to the effectiveness of a seal team, right? Or a platoon or anything. And yet the administrative side is so hell bent on getting it that they're willing to change standards. They're willing to fuck with the people who are in that uh, system who are, who are the ideal people to try to get this imaginary fictitious character that doesn't exist into a position so they can have their check in the box. And so when I looked at that, it's like, okay, are you really, is this really a war fighting warrior force? Or is it that? Because those two, thing, two things are mutually exclusive. They can't, ex they don't coexist at the same time. Um, so I decided like, yeah, while this is a warrior culture, the administrative side is, is pulling us into a whole different direction where it is exploiting that energy when they want to and then punishing guys for being what you need them to be in uh, other situations where it gets to like they don't have, they lack an understanding like PTS, TBI and how they, how they discipline, um, people when things manifest in a certain way. So, you know, I was still, I was, I, I can communicate about it very clearly right now in reflection, but even at the time, like I could just feel that shit was just not right. So I wouldn't have maybe said it like this back then. Well, the last question to that, cause I told you I had two for it, leaving that and going into trade it seems almost like a fool's errand going into trade it because now you are part of that machine. So you're taking all those ideas. So how do you do it? How do you go to trade it, train the way you know you're supposed to, but still follow the guidelines that are being spoon fed to you? Um, because we have a hundred, we had like full control of it, you know, especially coming off of war. Like we shifted from dynamic clearance to combat clearance against the previous trade at regime, I guess you could call it where they were like dynamic, 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 everything fast. It's like, bro, there's like IEDs, there's situations where it doesn't make sense to do that. So, you know, we literally just came back from this theater. You guys are talking theoretical training. It's like, you should probably listen to the people there. Fortunately, it was a shift and we just made the changes. So it was a very good program while we were there because we were training like you need to be fighting in the war. So actually, it was that was a very good experience. And all the headshed was very supportive in that um, structure. And they let us really run the training how it needed to be run. So it was actually, yeah, it was a very, it was, it was still a high point as far as like we were able to to um, act how we're supposed to act, to, to fill the capacity of an instructor to get people trained up as best as, as proficiently as possible. So I, I, I actually had a good time at Trade at, and it was assault, so you're doing CQC and urban warfare, and it, so it's, it's fun too. Okay, so as you come to the end of your career and you get out, you said you had no plan because you were going to do this for the rest of your life. So you come to this and um, I noticed that you talk a lot about this now, like you said, maybe not back then, but you talk a lot about it. And we mentioned it a little in your introduction that when people step out of the military and that transition, especially in the kind of environment that you were in, um, there's a tough transition period and there's no stepping stones. There's no one to kind of show them the way because maybe they were going to do that forever, or maybe they were going to do it for a short period of time, but there's nothing like what they were doing. So 
as you get out, what happens to you to get you to start thinking that? Oh, man, I was just um, going with the flow. Like, you know, I'm going to get out, going to go through these process, went through TAPS or whatever it was called, where they kind of do these little tests and tell you about kind of some programs. But it wasn't super it, like I didn't really understand my options. So I didn't maximally benefit from how I could have, you know, if I would have been more strategic and stuff, like I could have started using the GI bill and stuff right out the gate and, you know, done some, done some things, but I'm like, well, shit, if I'm going to not have a paycheck, I better figure out how to get a paycheck first. So I'm like, well, I'll just go, um, try selling cars or something at a car dealership, you know? So I went and like got an application during my terminal leave and was like working while I was on leave just to, to have something set up. And I did that for a couple months and then realized, yeah, you know, this is not the type of life for me. Like selling, slinging new cars on a lot is kind of soulless. And, you know, some people like it, I guess. But um, it was like seven, six and a half days a week, seven days, one week, six days the next from seven to seven. And you're getting like a hundred bucks a new car unless you hit these quotas. And then like I sold a used car once and I made like five grand on a used car. I'm like, well, this is way better of a <laughs> of a of a decision to sell used cars. And like, I can just do this on my own, like buying and selling stuff off of Craigslist. So then I like quit that job and did that and started going to school at that time. Um, but I didn't know exactly what I just like, well, I might as well use the GI bill. So I'm going to go to city college and just start taking courses and figure it out as I go. And, uh, eventually like figured out a path through there. And it was, um, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a cool experience. Um, confirmed a lot of stuff that I already knew about, the education system, but I also maximally leveraged it because I was coming off the backside of a military career. So I'm literally just absorbing everything that I can. Okay. So let's talk about a quote from you. You said the biggest thing I've noticed about trauma and people going through the process of healing is that the strongest medicine is just being around other people. Yeah. So let's For talk sure. about you and that quote in particular, and what you did when you got out to do that kind of stuff. Um, it took me a time to get there. It did, definitely didn't happen immediately. Like I was, you know, um, buying and selling cars off of Craigslist, doing contracts here and there, some overseas, some stateside, shooting stuff, you know, um, started buying boats at some point. And, and, you know, doing the same thing with cars and just really like wandered into certain jobs and out of certain jobs because they just, you know, you're, bal you're I was balancing the paycheck. Like you just got to do something to get a paycheck versus like you should your life should be fulfilling and you should be doing something that you really uh, is aligned with who you are as a person, like you're doing your highest purpose. And in all those situations, I was not doing them. I was not doing what I was supposed to be doing and i knew that because i could feel that it wasn't right so i you know my my instinct my intuition always guided me away from things that were not true um and you know we used to we used to drink we hang out we'd you know continue that military pattern of of uh doing things and eventually like my buddy uh rob who we were roommates and he ended up killing himself uh, while we were roommates and some other people were there and I was, a, most of us all were asleep and that was a whole like super surreal moment because it's not like we were other friends and people we knew had killed themselves at this point, but it doesn't make it any more uh, 
any less intense or real, you know, um, especially when you're, you never think that that's going to be the thing, especially when your bros like all super happy and stuff, you know, having a good time for the most part, you know, and like a positive being. And then it's like, damn, this interaction just happened and there's no reverse button, you know? And I remember even when that happened, I was like, it was, I didn't believe it for like, I don't know how long it was like, but at least like 30 seconds of time where I'm like, Oh, this is going to be some kind of prank. Those are my first thoughts, you know, but then it's also like the reality is coming in. It's like, Oh, what if it's actually not a prank? And then you're like, Oh, it's definitely not a prank. And then it's like reality, you know, hits. Um, so that kind of, that caused like a point of deep, a period of deep reflection where it's obviously like I stopped going to school. I stopped, I was working on, I started this business, you know, with, uh, co-founded this company that was like technology and financial technology and, you know, very, um, a wazoo idea that manifested into a reality from some hard work. Um, and I just like cut away from everything cause I'm just like, you know, you're going through like soul searching type of experience, I guess. Well, let me ask you with, with your roommate, you said you never saw it coming. He was a happy guy and stuff like that. So do you ever find out, do you ever get down to kind of the bottom of it and, and figure out what it was that, that shifted things for them? Because you said you'd seen it before, but obviously the signs weren't there with this one. Yeah. And we'd like seen it before as in like other people had killed themselves, but I hadn't been intimately involved in their journey up to that point. So that's what I mean there. And then as far as like why it's, uh, you don't want to, you don't want to pretend to like have all the answers, but there is a general environment that creates that outcome. So it's while while the person going through it has their reasons and their specific life experiences that cause them to, you know, struggle in such a way where they would do that. It's actually the environment that is allowing that to happen. And part of that environment is not having proper release valves. You know, when someone is struggling with this stuff, like people don't know how to communicate and have like real deep philosophical (laughs) conversations. And that can get into a whole myriad of things. Like some people just ask themselves why something happened or why something didn't happen, or did I make the right decision? Or you can get into like moral injury stuff and can go very, very broad because it's not just a lot of the West, the science looks at things as like, it's a mental thing or a brain chemical uh, imbalance that manifests this thought pattern that's off baseline. It's like, it's none of that shit. (laughs) Those are symptoms. And the real trauma is perhaps it's mental, perhaps it's emotional, perhaps it's spiritual, right? Um, And then of course, physical ones are pretty obvious, but when it comes to spirituality and like a really an understanding of that stuff, this, this machine, this system doesn't have it. It's, it's industrialized the war process. And because of that, that's where I was always feeling that disconnect between like warrior class and like industrialized machinery thing. Like there's no heart in an industrialized machinery. Warriors are full of heart. That's why warriors show up and fight to the fucking death for what they believe in, what they know is right for their family, for their, their, their people, their lands. Um, that's a whole different animal. It's a whole different beast than a machine that is very efficient 
at doing things. Um, and I kept examining like <laughs> this, this reality and, uh, you go into these, these periods of reflection and each time if you, you come back more centered with just an expanded awareness and like, you know, if you're feeling anger, rage, sadness, whatever, during those moments, when you, when you feel through those moments and you sit with it and you don't run away from them or chase it down with a bottle of alcohol or something, then you actually heal from those things. But however, if you're masking the symptoms with pharmaceutical pills that they give you because it changes their brain chemical structure and they think it's like treating depression or something. Um, and then it leads to suicidal ideation. The, the problem there is that Western medicine believes that it's this chemical formulaic thing that you can figure out as opposed to talking to the fucking human being and understanding why someone is struggling or why someone is exhibiting certain behaviors because there's a conscious reason for it somewhere in there it could be subconscious but it's it can be it can be extract it can be identified in conversation and that type of amount of work the machine it's not it's not economical so they're not going to invest that time really they're trying to get as fast as they can to identify a diagnosis that they can match to a a substance and they go here's the fix as opposed to being like well no the fix is like really understanding why are we doing something why are we here like what's the purpose what's the end goal like you know is this a series of forever wars as it has been or are you really trying to win some shit because you know are you really trying to end this like a, a just war and a, a, a good um like an an effective war campaign is very quick should be short because you don't want to draw this out because everyone in that process is suffering in some capacity especially families and stuff so the longer war drags on the the more detrimental the effect on the total population regardless of who wins or doesn't win if it just fizzles out like iraq and iraq and afghanistan and merges into a new one like in ukraine it's like the the common theme there is constant stimulus and then the question is, for what purpose is like, is it the, is there, is there the threat that's going on? Perhaps. Is there a whole shitload of corruption in that system that's claiming the threat? Perhaps. Um, so is it as black and white as it's shown on TV? Definitely not. Um, so when you really start reflecting on things and again i just look at who are the so-called leaders when you get up the chain and like beyond military and into now the civilian side of things where it's like commanders and chiefs or the staff and all this stuff and it's like at the end of the day none of those guys typically really go into combat and they're the ones that are making these so-called decisions um and i just really saw there was there aren't really any warriors in the administrative structure just like there aren't really any medical um experts truly tacticians people who treat people in the the medical administrative field right or you could go to any any studies you get these more academic theoretical people in managerial positions and theory and practice is not the same thing practice experience again wisdom only comes from experience it doesn't come from theoretical belief systems. Um, so we have a significant lack of experience leading 
bodies of people into situations, whether they be war, whether they be business, whether they, you know, like these, these economic games that are being played and it's blind leading the blind in some cases, or it's lions led by dogs in other cases, right? Where it's like this whole administrative paper tiger system. And I just, it's not just the military, it's across the the board that I see it uh, and saw it. So what makes yours is healing through nature. That's what you came to in all of your setting back, reflecting on this, figuring it out. So if I can play devil's advocate for a minute, what makes mm-hmm. yours different? Why is yours better? Why is it a better way to lead these people through this healing through nature, purposeful living than it is the way it's been being done? Because it's empowerment. It's taking someone in their natural raw state in their natural raw environment and saying like, yo, you're going to sit here and be very present with yourself and you have all the tools necessary to, to handle this situation. And it's not, as, not necessarily like we don't have some brief and we tell someone that, but it's through the experience, the process of someone sitting with themselves, going through whatever they need to go to through in a natural setting with no artificial stuff, filler, whether that's pills, whether that's like grid line streets, like all these things that are uh, artificial foods, like all these things that are disconnecting people from the cult, the, the reality that exists creates, um, issues that need to be addressed down the line. And those issues, if not addressed, lead to cognitive dissonance and thinking and where people can really believe that they're fighting or on the side of something that is like, man, if we just can accomplish this, thing then everything's going to be better um and that goes into like political movements and all this stuff where it's like basically outsourcing responsibility and accountability and so this process is like no there is no one you're going to vote for there is no one else that you're going to have come and solve these problems for you you're going to sit here you're going to do some hard work you're going to you know be amongst other peer group people accomplishing tasks accomplishing objectives those little wins start to build up in your system. Like you recognize you're working with your hands. Maybe it's moving rocks, you know, to make, um, to fix an erosion point or something like it's manual labor. It's honest work. You're exerting yourself and you don't have time to sit and wallow in sorrow where you can still feel it and process it, but you're doing something productive. So you're retraining, you're reframing the perspectives you have on things over some period of time and tapping into an awareness of that, like you're not the traumas and stuff that are, that you're experiencing, right? If someone's in a state of extreme depression or something, yeah, that's hard. That's a, that's a hard thing to deal with, but it's also like, that's not you. That's not what you're destined to for the rest of your life. That's something that you have to feel through in this moment. And it's like, when you're going through a dark tunnel, don't, just keep going because there is a light eventually you're going through hell keep going it's that type of mentality where and it goes back to buds too like the people who quit like it got to a point of hellaciousness where they decided like all right this is enough like i can't the light at the end of the tunnel is too far away or i can't see it so i'm just gonna turn around and go back this way um and i think that's it's that general nature to not want to 
face reality sit in the present moment. And so the human psyche in some cases chooses to go a different direction. And, you know, um, the work isn't done like there. It, it's like when you have a unre- when you have something you're supposed to do, especially like as a man, you can speak, but it's all human beings. It's like if you said you're supposed to do something or you know you're supposed to do something, and you don't do it. It weighs on you because you're like, you know, that's your fucking that's your honor at the end of the day. If you're like, man, I told someone I was going to do it and I didn't do it. You start beating yourself up or if I told myself I was going to do it and I didn't do it, people start going these negative ways of thought. And so by having like, regardless, wipe that slate or keep that slate and let's just get little wins by dig a hole, move a rock, plan a thing, you know, disconnect, reconnect, tap into stuff that is created by God, right? The, the natural environment. No one has a patent on that stuff. There's no pharmaceutical person. There's no experts psychotherapist or whether that's going to come with a theory you're just going to have a realization in the mountains in the forest on a farm whatever amongst peers in a way that's not a funeral that's not something negative because that's another issue is like when people gather back together um, oftentimes for military it's like damn we should really hang out when it's not a funeral you know that's often the conversation and so this is part of that too it's like yo let's get together for no other reason than to get together have a good like have some food, have some chats, maybe do some hiking, do some work, you know, uh, get back to life. And now you're creating positive synergistic experiences where people are benefiting each other by benefiting themselves and people can suffer in silence together, go through their own shit when it needs to. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of healing that happens when no words are being spoken, but everyone's doing something together. Um, and that's, that's what makes this different is that it's taken the the skill sets that make veterans, especially special warfare, like like the small unit camaraderie tactics, ability to just get something done, even if you don't know how to do it. It's like we'll figure it out and we'll work on it until we get it done because that's what humans do. We have creative capacity. Um, we have the capacity to work together. Those are like two human superpowers that no other animal has on this earth, no other being that I know of, maybe Bigfoot or something. But um, we are uniquely capable of that and just getting together and people experiencing and seeing that is inspirational that's to some level even if it's really small and that's all you need it's like a little momentum one step forward one foot in front of the other the snowball rolls downhill and it gets a life of its own and before you know it instead of uh you know someone having suicidal thoughts or or, or go, then they're like creating a new passion company or something and just putting all their energy into that or, or being a really good father or mother or whatever it happens to be for uh, the veteran or person that we're talking about. Cause trauma is not isolated to veterans. It's just, you know, war tends to um, create intense periods of, of, of trauma for people to deal with. And so in some respects, like veterans are a leading edge population of um, dealing with stuff. So I want to ask one more question kind of as a devil's advocate, because I've heard you talk about it and I know where you go with it, but I want you to explain it to people that are listening. People will look at that and say, well, they're out there. They're having to face it. What if they can't handle what they're facing? They don't have professional help like we've talked about on here. uh, Any of those kind of things. They just are facing that reality. What happens when it goes wrong? Um, so specify, so like someone's sitting by themselves, basically in their own energy and they're just really spiraling downward. 
Yeah. Yeah. So number one is to like, and, and it comes in a point of reflection before you're in that state or as you're, if you're listening and you're kind of in that state to realize that number one, other people in your situation have been there before, have been in those, not exactly the same state, but in similar states where they're dealing with maybe extreme depression or something, some kind of mental, emotional, spiritual state. And, you know, there have been people who have sat through, gotten better. So it it is possible, even though when it feels helpless, to know that it's not hopeless. That's just like, it's always darkest before it's light. So you're, there is that point at which it's going to feel maximally like hopeless. However, going back to that thing, like you're going through hell, keep going. And it doesn't mean like avoid or numb out. It means sit with it, reflect on it, feel it, process it. Like if you got to cry, cry, you know, cause if you're holding in tears, which men typically do, but if you have a real reason to cry, you know, if like your homie dies or something, that's, that's a valid reason to shed some tears. It's a version of prayer. Um, and so if people aren't allowed to release, allowing themselves to release that energy in the form of crying or whatever, yelling something, um, then it, it stays inside and they carry it with them. That emotional energy manifests because it's always like someone's tea kettle is like ready to burst, you know, or the more the more that energy is built up. It's important to acknowledge that, to recognize like, yeah, it sucks, but you're going to sit through the suck and you're going to assess like, what can I do? And if it's unbearable, number one, contact a buddy, contact a friend, doesn't matter, reach out, call. I got a call the other day from a bro and he's like, man, I'm really struggling. We just sat and had a chat, you know, no big deal. He's like, man, I feel, you know, however I'm like, dude, don't, there's no excuse. Like it's, I'm thanks for calling. It's glad, I'm glad that you did. You know, that's takes a strong character to make that call and ask for help, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Cause we all have, um, periods when we could use some help. That's part of, that's another benefit of being a human on the other side of it, when someone needs your help and you're able to give it, that's, that's a version of a, it's a blessing, right? Cause you're able to, you're able to provide support for someone in their time of need. And if it's a peer type situation where you have a similar background, that's a sacred role because not everyone can relate. Like not every, you know, it's one of the problems with combat um, stuff. Cause if people haven't been in combat, they're not going to have that peer understanding. So it's either going to be a judgy perspective of like therapists are trying to figure out what's wrong or just a no frame of reference perspective. And that's where I don't think it's, therapists or doctors or people who are going to get these degrees to try to understand shit. It's like, it's the people who have been through it, who have had the experiential knowledge, which is wisdom again, to actually sit and have a conversation, listen to where someone's at and then offer, offer guidance, advice, not say like, Hey, you're going to do X, Y, and Z and say, Hey, I've been in a similar state. There's a couple forks in the road here's one avenue. Here's maybe the avenue they're going to push you to. I don't find that very valuable. I think it's quite destructive when it gets into pharmaceuticals or here's this, some of these other paths that are more natural, um, communal, you know, tribal, uh, we're coming from team units, which are very small. That's a tribal, um, environment. And then you're going into civilization where, you know, at the average company or something, there's no 
there's no common cultural thread that that binds people together. It's just they're all there for a paycheck. And maybe they also kind of like the company or what it's doing. But at the end of the day, there's no real higher purpose beyond making that paycheck. And when there's like in the military, you're not getting paid that great. I mean, it's, it's whatever. Um, but you're there, number one, for a purpose. And that purpose is important because you have a meaning for existing. We, we don't just exist by accident, even though some people in their headiness and in their academic attempts to understand the nature of reality and consciousness and all that stuff, they try to say like, oh, it's just a big accident. We're all just here and blah, blah, blah. It's like when you drill down into that, it's very obviously not true and no one actually does believe it. <laughs> That's why there's conflict when it gets to a depth of conversation around that stuff. And if you do reflect and you say, I am here, why am I here? If you know why you're here, your life is, even when you're going through tough times, like you deal with it, you know, if like you're uh, like, I just, we have a young daughter, four months old. Like if she's going through some stuff, our purpose is to be there to help her through it. So even as much, as much as it may suck or be, you know, affect you negatively, you know, you're there for a higher purpose. Another, another human being is depending on you. Same thing in the team setting. You have other people there. So your shit that you have to deal with, you're not going to allow it to negatively impact the other people. When you get pulled out of that environment, isolated, and you can sit in your own thoughts for a long period of time, that's when people can get trapped and feel like, well, now I, no one does depend on me. No one does care. So we're going to seek an exit from this situation. And that's when it's, um, it's, it's becomes very obvious that community prevents that crisis from happening. Therefore community is the medicine that needs to be put back together. And that's what guardian green is about is about reconnecting people in communities for a positive thing. Or as Buckminster Fuller said, it's like you can, if you put your time and energy as much as it was to like create weaponry and you create a livingry in it, you know, the world's going to be a pretty awesome place pretty soon. And that's, one of the philosophies that we're expanding upon, you know, is the livingry, like taking these, these us being like tools of weaponry. We have these skills that don't really apply in the civilian marketplace as it exists right now, but they actually do because when you take it to like your deployability and your ability, like ability as seals or whatever to go and like, spend time outdoors with minimal requirements and gather observational data and report and do work like that directly applies to environmental restoration that directly applies to farming like maybe you, you need to pick up some new skills but then that becomes fun like yo, you're going to learn about animal husbandry you're going to learn about soil science you're going to learn about water management you're going to learn about these these living systems and um spiritually there's a good like the to, to have that balance of nurturing life if you've come from a, a a profession of dealing death or where that's part of it, it's my understanding, my 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 knowingness of it is like you take the opposite energy and you incorporate that to create a balance, right? If your if your mind is like just racing, 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 someone got to have a deep-hearted connection. So again, like someone having a child that may create it right or someone having a, a fucking going out in the woods for enough time and then they really realize like how beautiful it is just being alive and they let go of a lot of the 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 self 
self beating the beating of the self up you know mentally and it's like man i'm just lucky to be alive to be sitting in like a forest with all these mountains in that natural beautified setting where no human beings built it you know like it's it's not an invention of man it's an invention of god and and i think that's i think that's a big thing with you is that what I take from everything that we've talked about is this nature thing is because there's not someone directly over you telling you what to do that doesn't understand it. It's you and understanding the world that you're in. Now, in Guardian Grange, I want to talk about that. I looked up the definition. Guardian, a defender, protector, keeper. Grange is a country house with farm buildings attached. So. Yeah. It's everything that we've talked about so far, the Guardian mentality uh, even the house with the farm equipment and, and farm buildings around it is building that community uh, mm-hmm. over and over. And then you being the defender of that uh, grange, of that farm, of that community, uh, along with the other people that are working with you. But let's talk about you have three main reasons for Guardian Grange. Can we talk about the three main reasons? Yeah, for sure. So it's. You know, there's the community health reason, right? The the cohesiveness, the fact that society has been very obvious, divided amongst each other, right? So there's that lack of communication, which creates a schizophrenic society at the end of the day. If people can't talk to each other, it's not that much different than your brain not being able to talk to each other. So if you lack communication, there's a division that happens. And the more strong that division is, the harder it becomes like, it's like tension on a knot that knot has to be eased and slacked and untied in order to not be a knot in there anymore. And so that's, that's one of the big sides of it. Um, the other one is, is the, the individual, like the veterans, the veterans health and really individuals health, but the veterans mental, spiritual, emotional, physical too health, but physical, we have a better understanding of, Um, the mental, spiritual, and emotional side, not so much. And so really getting someone to a balanced state within their mind, body, spirit, um, emotions. So we're efficient, not just efficient, but compassionate, understanding, tapped into our intuition and our instincts, you know, and able to critically think, observe, and assess and become aware of a situation unclouded by emotional states. So that's that's uh that's another one and then um the environment is the other and the environment being you know like where's your food coming from where's your where's your water coming from what's in that stuff you know city water is toxic it's it's pretty gross um and it's it's not good or a lot of processed food they have it's malnourishing it's so it's lacking nourishment and it's it's toxic and that stuff builds up in the physical body and creates these like diseased states number one in the human and number two like the environment itself like if you're if you're a forest you walk into a forest and it's a nice big biodiverse amalgamation of life that's cooperatively working together even though like a wolf made a deer or something right the deer and the wolves they're not at war with each other that's a natural exchange in a cycle of life um and so while there is life and death going on, it's cooperatively working to make that whole living ecosystem stronger. Um, 
and really tapping humans back into our high, what I consider the highest role, which is human beings as a steward of our, of our environments. So our, na- our, our local natural environments, number is, is one of those. Our bodies is also an environment. So taking care of ourselves as best as we can and making sure like, you know, we're, we're cleaning stuff up. We're, we're, we're managing our food, our natural food systems properly. So they're not, you know, not tilling the soil and then the soil's losing nutrients over time. And now we're at this point where the, the stuff that's being grown doesn't have the same nutrient profiles that existed like a hundred years ago or the animals because there's pesticides are having, you know, chemicals stored in their fat and it's little trace amounts, but that stuff over time builds up. So point being is like to be conscious of like, Hey, that just because stuff's going on and it's somewhat working economically kind of, but not really, um, just because it's happening that way, we need to really assess, like, are we making the best decisions in the moment? Not for the whole world, because you can't like, you can't manage anything outside of your domain. Like I always say, or like to point out that a deer, in California, you know, in whatever San Diego or something is running around its little range. It's not that much, it's like so many miles and they have no care or they have no idea what's going on with a deer in New Hampshire and vice versa. But humans, because we can be aware of stuff that's happening far away and you can create an emotional attachment to it. People tend to be very, um, bold with like, Oh, we're going to save the world. We're going to do X, Y, and Z you know, and we got to vote this person or campaign for something or X, Y, whatever. It's like, or my thing is like, you can just focus where you're at and make your little piece as awesome as it can be. And if a, if a whole bunch of us are doing that, then we are having an effect, a net effect, but we're having, we're doing it with maximal impact because again, I can't do anything about what's going on in Georgia, whatever that may be. Um, I can do something about what's happening around my house, my community and our, our tribe. And we can, we can, uh, inspire each other because we have bonds with people we know, as opposed to like social media has been great about this as far as like taking people away from their own families, their own friends, their own, and feeling like they have a, a, a more of a connection to, whatever influencers or figures on a, on a screen when they don't even have the full picture. So they get like basically a romanticized or a jaded view and they tend to stick with someone who's romanticized, right. And discount people who they feel is not jiving with them, but had they had a full true relationship, they'd see the more whole human being. And that's when you get into situations where someone could have a preconceived notion about a type of person and just by hanging around each other, the, the, the stereotypes get bypassed. Like in the military it's very good for that for a lot of people. Cause it's a melting pot. People come together, but it's like, yo, here's a task. This is our primary objective. So that other stuff falls to the wayside for long enough to people to see each other as human beings and not some identity, some race, some this, that, the other, whatever, whatever identity people want to attach to, um, how they see someone else as anything other than a human being, created creation of the creator um and well at the I, end of the day, and i call like it a good child yeah i call it facebook perfect and that's where a lot yeah. of people are at is they don't see what all went into that they just see the end results the the perfectness or the 
whatever it may be. And it's, it's a big problem with guardian Grange. You have a couple different, um, things that are going on projects, but I want to talk about the Escondido microgrange first, and then we'll move into the pollinator preserve and then the food forest, um, yeah. about some stuff that's coming up. So can you talk about the Escondido, what it's doing and what it's making available in that area? Yeah. So Escondido, it's down in obviously San Diego area, which is a lot of veterans. So it's, it's really like the doorway. It's a space where vets can come and, you know, like we've had events and we're having one on the eighth too, where, you know, they can get some acupuncture, some massage, do some yoga, hang out, eat, chat about the bigger kind of vision and how people can get involved in other projects. Um, but it's also a proving ground like Rob, um, Robert Sweetman, who's been out there for a while, just like it, it gave him a great break to reflect on where he is at in his life and kind of reset and really start taking care of himself. And man, he's like crushing it. And he's been, you know, um, really take feeling the energy, taking it and like moving forward. Like he's the one who set up this event, like the calm down bro on the eighth and the last one we did. And so it's cool to see it getting a life of its own. Um, but that property is like a little, you know, it's a two acre place. So there's only so much we can do. It's more of like garden. It's proof of concept. And that's why I call it a micro grange. Cause that grange is again, the farm with many different outbuildings. So not every building. It's like, if you have a processing area, you have a garden, you have a pasture with cows, like you could have that all in one place, or you might just have like, yo, property down there has got some cows other side of town, you know, we can process, we got some gardens over here. So basically that's serving as like a gathering place, uh, a, a space to, to, to do work, to conceptualize, visualize, and do some of the gardening stuff. Um, but it's, it's definitely like, it's a doorway in that area. And then I'm up more in Ojai, um, and we're working on establishing some, you know, more like the food forest working and rehabilitating the land, um, to optimize it for regenerative food production locally and feeding and like some of our partners are working with like chakra chai which is a an ayurvedic drink is to create to fulfill the supply line with the projects we're at so we're working towards things like that where yeah we're a nonprofit, but my intention and goal is to get it to the point where donations are always welcome and it's cool but where we don't depend on it where we're producing our own revenues and providing opportunity for whether it's someone for a job or whatever to push this uh, mission forward so um, it's it's when i say like a regeneration network is like well what is regeneration you know regenerative agriculture is describing the fact that it's a circular input just like a, a forest it's like our human input in there is to manage that system so the natural processes work and don't rely on external inputs um, as far as your own self, it's like uh, spiritual regeneration, right? Rebirth, renewal, um, having expanded awareness that move you from, you know, a state of focused kind of anxiety or depression or something where it's like hyper-focused into being able to release that. That is a regenerative experience too, because now you're becoming more of yourself those emotional states aren't controlling your actions or, or really like influencing so much. So that's, uh, 
That's all I got to say about that, I guess, for now. <laughs> well, let's talk about the pollinator preserve uh, real quick, too. And then I want to talk about some of the, because we, we went over it, but we didn't really go into it. We need to talk about some of the expenses. This doesn't come for free. You talked about people being able to donate money and things like that. But you have things like a collapsed well, debris cleanup, site cuts, all those kind of things. So first, let's talk about the pollinator preserve, what your idea was behind that. And then let's talk about the expenses that going into setting this up. Yeah, for sure. So the pollinator project, that was it's a, a collaborative effort with um, the... Uh, Ola over there with of the the Neiman Shell Ranch, and he uh, he had this beautiful 200 acre property out there. And part of that mission was to to increase pollinator plants to create the space for monarchs. And you know that's that's the one that catches a lot of the attention. But um, those pollinators to come in and do their thing because when pollinators again, it's a natural system. It's cooperative. You need all of the all of the little beings to do their part. And so if you bump up pollinators, then your life in that area is going to be more rich, more, more wealthy. And so that was a way of like seeing a problem. Hey, there's not, there used to be a lot of monarchs in that area. Now there's a lot less, whatever the reasons are. Like one of them is like, if you have their food sources, the, the, the plants that they like to be around, it's going to be a, a, a more healthy environment. And, and when you have more of the bugs that are supposed to be there, the animals that are supposed to be there, the plants that are supposed to be there, it becomes healthy. So that was, you know, hey, it's an opportunity for us to go do some work, get that thing started. And um, yeah, it was cool that NBC did an article on it and wrote about it. It was very well received because at the end of the day, it's um, it's an honest way of doing things. And it's 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 a humble way of like, Hey, we're going to do some work. How are we going to, uh, really create this healing environment? Are we going to look for a substance? Are we going to, um, try to just talk ad nauseum or are we just going to put our heads down and like get some stuff done and come to realizations through that work and develop strong, um, productive, meaningful relationships. So let's talk about some of the expenses with it. Uh, we, we've talked about what it does for the community, what it does for veterans, but it's not free. And so I want people to understand with donations, and we'll talk about the membership plans a little bit and things like that. But first off, let's talk about expenses. And when you go into a site like the microgrange, when you go into a site like the food forest, what it entails and what kind of expenses come behind it. Yeah. I mean, so number one, we're blessed to have like our sweat equity, right? You have, you have the ability to invest finances into something. You also have the ability to just get down and dig. And so we have been growing through a lot of sweat equity and we're blessed to have like a general contractor guy with some equipment as part of our team. That's Joe. And he has a wealth of experience and you know, we're able to actually get a lot of work done. Like we've done at least like hundred, if you were paying a construction outfit, like hundred grand to do some of the stuff we've done already. Um, and that's really cool to have that, the capacity to do work, um, for, for the, the good of doing the work, like not for getting a profit on the backside, not that there's necessarily something wrong with, you know, making a profit for your work, but, some of this stuff isn't actually profitable, which is why I have, you know, 
this solution as far as the environmental side set up as a nonprofit, because if you're trying to, uh, if you're leading with profit as the, as the motivator and something's not profitable, that means it's not going to get done right. Whereas if it's, if your goal is to get shit done right and it's not profitable, you're still going to take the hit to get it done right because you're actually investing in other forms of capital, like your financial capital may be going down, but oh damn, your soil is really healthy and now you're growing produce or you got enough chickens that are producing eggs and you're getting a return and other things. And for sure you could sell those eggs and produce and extract a financial return. But the, the, the establishment of living systems and living infrastructure, living capital, expanding upon that is really what makes the soil based economy a thing. Like I say it as a word that I created to describe like this broader structure beyond even the nonprofit. It's like what the nonprofit is helping to plant the seeds of, but it's a different way of perceiving and acknowledging where value comes from. Cause a lot of people right now they'll see like, what is value? It's a price, like a number in a bank account, but you can't eat your bank account. You can't eat your money. You can't eat your gold or silver or crypto or anything like that. So when it comes down to like your hierarchy of needs, if the system is like very abundant, like it has been for a while, um, people don't, they tend to take it for granted. And when, when a squeeze comes or when the system stops working as it, as it has been, and people try to hang on to value, like, Oh, what's the cost of a, a gallon of milk or whatever. It's like, well, at the end of the day, like if you're in, if you're in a desert, you're starving that gallon of milk, I drink raw milk. It's like 20 bucks a gallon, but I do it for a reason because it's good. And at the end of the day, it's like that nourishment and the positive effects it has on your, your life is so much more than you can measure in the dollars. So I'll always, um, default to making the best decision as I can, whether it's for my own body's environment or the environment that I'm around to create a healthy balanced ecosystem. And that's kind of the whole, I'm able, we're able to prioritize that and we're able to, you know, when it comes to cost, it's like, okay, well, we need like X amount for this well to get it done. Cool. Um, but in the meantime, we're still like making progress at it. We're still getting stuff done because we have the, we know we need to get, get what's done right. Yeah. Would money capital infusion help get some stuff done efficiently? Sure. Of course. But regardless, we're doing this work. Like we're committed to doing the work. Um, you know, whether it's like materials for tools, garden boxes, training, whatever, we're running a, a pretty tight ship because we're a young organization. Like we're le- not even two years old, really. Um, 2020, 2020 is when we started and we're in you know, October when we got our letter back. Um, we were, I was seeding the idea before then, but that's when we were officially like existing as a nonprofit. And so it's been less than two years and it's been during COVID, a lot of, you know, challenging time for a lot of things, but because we're literally able to sweat and bleed and, you know, pay, pay towards this vision with those, uh, items. And we have a little bit of financial help from like donors and stuff. Um, it's been cool, but I'm definitely ready to like pour some more gasoline in the engine and accelerate. Cause now we have enough proof of concept. We know kind of where the, 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 the issues are or things to tighten, to mend. Like one thing I've been going on a lot is uh, like actually creating the community structure, like the, 
the systems that people can step into with having no outside knowledge and start to understand what it's like to work as part of a, a team in a different aspect. So I'm really, um, I've been spending a lot of this two years on like, number one, just getting this grassroots work done, doing a little bit of, you know, we haven't even done a proper fundraiser. It's just been all word of mouth and um, like connections that we've had who want to support because they see that it's real. Um, we have a solid understanding of like, all right, it's got energy to it. People are, people are really down their, their understanding and it's filling these gaps where a lot of people have talked about building like their whatever, um, utopian kind of society. It's not that, but it's, it's the acknowledgement of like, there's a better way of doing things. And to a degree, like we came away from it, you know, like 20 years ago, there wasn't that many big box stores, right? There wasn't all the targets and right. Walmart super centers. And, and there, there was a lot more mom and pop shots. There was a lot more small family farms. And so that diversity, that lack of centralization, it was much more decentralized and your communities were healthier and richer for it. And so that's what, um, working on going back to using veterans as the vehicle to pollinate this system around the nation eventually, but we're starting like where our, our highest population density is and the, the amount of capital potential assistance to really help seed this system and take these, the cellular systemic structure. And I know I can take, like, if I can do it with eight people here, four people here, or 10 people here, we can replicate that over here. And by creating leadership within these cells, instead of like waiting for some centralized command structure to dictate down like what you right. should be doing in Idaho, people know instinctively, intuitively, and from their own experience, what they need to do, or we get together and like chat, like, Hey, how do we tackle this problem? Let's all, let's all focus on what's going on on John's farm in Iowa. You know, man, he's running into these issues. How would we solve it? Oh, maybe let's take a crew out there and, and, uh, do some work, help drive some fences or whatever, like help let, share the load right. for people who are trying to do this, like farmstead kind of lifestyle. Can it be done? Yeah. But it's a lot better when you have a community of like hearted people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about, I know that the money's not a big thing to you, but I think that people that aren't close to you, but could maybe help out. Uh, let's talk about the membership plans. You have a freemium, an all access membership, a community supporter, and then a lifetime founding member. If we can talk about those to kind of wrap up this conversation about how people can help you. Yeah, so that you're talking about the community section, which I still consider it in beta, and we're using it for a lot of like internal stuff. But basically, that's um, the network, one of the network portions of it where we can come and collaborate on projects. Um, I'm going to be leveraging it more in the future for for like getting groups together so they can work on uh, an educational component or a, a problem solving component or just communications to really build the community side of this. So that membership was to kind of seed it. So free, it's freely accessible to everyone. And if people want to support um, the guardian Grange model through a membership there, like as we turn on different um, courses, you know, or different educational components, people who have like these other levels get access to that as we create it, but it's still very young and it's in beta. So it's people who are buying into the vision 
at that aspect and want to support it in that capacity, it helps out. Um, and you know, we're still exploring that platform that's being used and there's some potentially going to get an app, um, have an app created. I got to just test some stuff out and basically I'm trying to make it really easy for people to stay engaged because it is, um, a concept that's not being done. So it takes many touch points and experiences and, and new learning opportunities to really number one, see that this is possible. It's not some fairy tale, like good idea of, you know, it's not, we're not talking about utopian shit. We're talking about just real honest present assessment of work that needs to be done and the humble capacity to do that work and reflecting and understanding the fact that we are the leaders as you know, if it's eight of us in a community and we have the presence of mind that we need to improve it, you're the leader at that point. So time to get to work, time to like, you know, rally, um, support if support can be rallied. And if not, it's like head down, do the work and grow, help grow this organization with that intention, you know, that the, with that knowing the right people will show up and they have and have been and will continue to. And the ones who don't really see value in it um, or don't understand the value, they're going to continue doing whatever they're doing, and that's fine. Um, but it's really building new structures that are, it's not like I'm, it's not like I invented any new shit. It's just like reframing natural systems and, and, and patterning operations off of natural systems so that this network is built from the ground up with an anti-fragile framework. So as it expands and grows like a tree, as a tree gets bigger, it doesn't get weaker. It gets stronger. Like a redwood's very strong. Right. Sapling's not so strong, but in a, in the corporate side of things, when you get a bigger corporation, it tends to get more fragile. There's there, the communication is less efficient. There's more friction and it all comes down from the, basically the model, the pyramid model where you have your top, your CEO, and your sea levels all the way down. And there's like a micromanagement. There's a loss of communication instead of like how mycelium works or how root systems work, um, how your blood cells work. If you get a cut, like you're, you don't have to tell your blood, Hey, make a scab on my arm and stop the bleeding. It just knows what to do. You're like, damn, thanks blood. I didn't die. Cause you like did what you're supposed to do. Good job. You know? So that's more of the, the structure is getting in the concept of, um, or in the reality of like a butterfly, when it changes from a caterpillar into a butterfly, it liquefies and becomes, you know, it goes from one state, liquefies, goes to another. And there's this cell called that maginal cell, which has all the potential for what the butterfly becomes. The butterfly only becomes a butterfly if that cell is like healthy and intact and does that thing. So that's the same kind of framework we're doing. Like our smallest cell has to be fully capable and healthy. And until it's that way, we don't expand it because you can't expand once it is fully capable and healthy. Now you have some redundancy in there and it's like cell division. You have one cell, it turns to two. So you have the resources to feed the other cell. Boom. You get another eight people and you can do that in an area. You could do that across a region, across a nation. But of course we're pop, we're creating this stuff where we're at right now. And you know, I'm from originally New Hampshire, like vets are from all over the place. So I look at this as like the skeleton of this body that's being built because it's not going to just be us. However, we can set the example and are 
from the way of like, we're dealing with trauma, you know, we're tip of the spear again in that regard, right. and then leveraging that energy to do good work and to use our creative capacity and our ability to work in community to get done what needs to get done by any means necessary. And it's, it's, it's positive. It's cool. And it's, it's a, it's a creative process. It's, it's dirty. It's like not, not super well polished, but it's, it's real and it's raw and it's a natural thing that's growing. So I'm proud of uh, where we've come from and where we're at and where we're going. Yeah. And, and I think the biggest thing about everything that you just said is you're talking about, it's only as strong as the weakest link, but if you make every link as strong as the other, there's no way that it can do but succeed. So yeah, let's and it, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and so like, if you're, if you're looking at like the footprints you leave behind on a trail or something, right? Imagine if like every footprint you leave behind, there's new life just growing and flourishing. And it's like, oh, wow. When these people come into town or come into an area, things get better. Right. Like that's what I'm talking. That's, that's the energy that we're, that we're putting into things. Well, of course, guardiangrange.org is a place that you can be found where we talked about a lot of the stuff, the community, it gives the mission, it gives the projects, everything like that. Are there other places, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, that people can find you learn more about this project? Yeah, we have Instagram's probably the most active. We have, there's, there's a Twitter page, there's a Facebook page, but they're less, we're not really doing stuff on there. I, we will as we turn it on. I'm just, everyone's wearing a lot of hats. I don't have time to manage a lot of medias and Instagram seems to be the most engaging. We also have a TikTok one that I personally haven't been on. Um, but, you know, Robert's been managing that and we'll probably do some more, you know, leverage these, these, me, these mediums or these, uh, yeah, these mediums of exchange as best we can. Um, another thing is like, we're, we're, we're working on a documentary slash or docu series to help tell the story, right? Because, um, the, the story is, is one of the most powerful tools that we have as human beings to communicate like, well, what is this really about? What's going on? What's the vision? So I'm excited to have a solid team and it's still early days of that, but we have a, a funding strategy, for that too mapped out where we're going to approach businesses and be like, Hey, if you want to help us make this documentary, throw some change at it, uh, you're going to get some good press out of it. So, and it's a write-off, you know, you can do sponsorships. So that's kind of the, the model that we're going to spin and present and leverage the capacity to really like help people see really what this is about. Cause it's, you know, it's a passion beyond, it's a necessary thing, but I have a real creative passion for it. Like I can see the vision. I can see it out 20 years where it's going and we're here still planting these seeds and tweaking things to get your found our foundation really solid. Cause if you have a solid foundation and you grow from there, things are going to be good. But if you have a shaky or unstable foundation, you know, you're, you're growing too fast and you, there's going to be breakage down the line. So I've been really, you know, pulling the reins, not pulling the reins back, but being very cautious to not like, not force anything to allow the, the divine timing to play its play itself out. And it's really interesting, like the types of people who have come and encircled this, this idea and this vision and started contributing and, and, and being supportive of it in, in, in many ways, you know? Um, so it's cool. I, I, it's, it's some real stuff. And as far as like walking with purpose, I know even when it's, 
you know, I'm, I'm working way more than I would like to work as far as just like doing way more administrative shit than I want and, right. you know, doing all that stuff. However, it's, there's a purpose to it. It's for our kid, like my kids, our kids, like the future, like long after we're going to be here. And, you know, I feel, I feel great about it. I feel solid, even though we're not at like, we're not at like, uh, we're still at a state where we're grinding, you know, it's still a grind, right. but yeah. we're getting it done, you know? Yeah. That, but I mean, that, that's the state of the world right now, especially coming mm -hmm. through where you did it through COVID and everything. So I think it's a fantastic idea. I think it's a, a fresh approach to not only alternative therapy for these guys that are, that are having trouble kind of coming back into society, but it's great to just look at the future and what this is going to be able to provide when it stretches all the way across the United States from coast to coast. You're doing a fantastic job. You have an amazing message, and I'm so thankful that you came on the show. Uh, is there any last thing that you want to promote before we kind of end this? Yeah, so we're you. We talked, I think, before the podcast started about Ryan Parrot and the, the Human mm -hmm. Performance Project and the Absolutely. Seven Act, which we're we're a part of. And yeah, they're doing. You know, we're having a really cool um, event in 2023, which is going to be seven base jumps or, or jumps out of airplanes or base jumps, seven marathons and seven plunges in seven days on seven continents. And so we're making this whole um, spectacle of it, but also like the process is to learn and to document and to put out the the real gouge on like optimizing performance and recovery for everyone and a big part of that is focusing on like you know there's too many suicides still to this day and so it's attacking that from another angle too which is like if you get your if you're focused on human performance whether that's physical emotional spiritual all of it like getting into balance and operating at your highest capacity that's what that project is about and we got you know some of the best base jump the best base jumpers in the world as part of that project some a super awesome team medical professionals people who really um are top notch in their space to put this project together which is uh, a logistical crazy challenge you know and i'm not i'm not really on that logistical side but i know and i'm blessed to be part of this that project we are a beneficiary of it so definitely go check that out um and then as far as like you know some of these other modalities of healing um blessed to also be a member of church of the people for creating mother earth which is down on the res and we do uh native ceremonies you know and and um sweats and work with different ways of healing together you know for veterans mma fighters football players all kinds of people have been and been coming through that uh gathering of of no strings attached it's like you just show up you go through these processes and that's it there's no there's no money exchange there's no nothing it's a it's a really honest way of gathering together so i just came up from there uh today you know drove four hours down last night four hours back today because there's, there's some real stuff there and that goes into, um, beyond the personal familial, um, community healing. There's also like a cultural healing cause there's, there's some, some standing stuff, right. That has been affecting people. And it, it goes back to some of the same issues we're dealing with now when it comes into water and food and all this stuff, like it's been going on for a long time. So right. it's good to sit with human beings and 
you know, connect at that level as fathers, you know, as, um, friends and community members and, um, really have a, have a, a purposeful, meaningful kind of reflective period of time. So, um, I wanted to give a shout out there too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's it, man. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Like I said, you're doing amazing things. We'll make sure that we get the stuff with Ryan Parrott onto your episode page and, and let him, uh, let him know, uh, everything that's going on with that guys. I think that's going to be it for tonight. You know, if you want more of me, you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. If you want to go check us out, though, at the one-stop shop, the DTDpodcast.net is going to be it. It's got audio. It's got video. It's got each person's own episode page with pictures of their past, pictures of the present, and pictures of what they're thinking about doing in the future, plus all their links. You'll be able to find out everything that you want to find out about Mark, whether that be links or just looking into his past. Also, don't forget, go to our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. It's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. Don't forget, though, their specialty coffees don't miss on flavor, and you'll find out once you drink it. But the most important cause and the thing we come back to every week is they give 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And when you go there and you make your order, DJK10 will give you 10% off your order. Policecoffee.com, DJK10 for your 10% off. That's going to be it, guys. Thank you so much for coming by. That's Mark. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We'll see you later.